Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming back again for another episode of the Playsheet Podcast. I'm Charles, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Joe. Hey there, guys. Joe, you all cozied up with a blanket? Are the windows rattling at the moment? Because uh, we're we're on for storm number two is on its way, isn't it? Storm number two is on its way, um, although I think it's got nothing on what they had in Buffalo on Monday night. I mean, the absolute scenes of that, even the net behind the field goals was flapping wildly. It was horrific. It was... Well, the flag on top of a field goal blew away before the game started. So you only had one flag on top of one of the sets of field goals. I mean, it really, really did look pretty brutal there. The wind was swirling around, the rain was coming down. But as we said last week, it's not like it was a California team coming in and playing there. These are two teams that are very much used to this kind of weather at this time of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we're going to jump straight into it, Joe, what was quite interesting about that game is how the two teams approached it. And I think maybe you could say their confidence in their own ability with certain parts of their game. New England, we've discussed this before. They are a team that feels very balanced, very well-rounded. They sort of run by committee and they weren't afraid to turn to the run game regularly and often during this matchup. I think that's a little bit of an understatement there, <laughs> yeah, Charles. Turn to the run game. <laughs> it was basically the run game. What this game highlighted is how the Bills are an unbalanced team. Now, it, it's been a narrative, and at times a lazy one, but it's been a narrative that people have had through the season that the Bills don't really have a run game. And this was apparent, really, when you look at how this game kind of panned out. When the wind was blowing like it was, when you can't really even punt on fourth down because it's going to blow back in your face and you're going to make 10 yards from a punt. Passing wasn't really the order of the day. The Patriots showed this. But the Bills, despite having now a free-headed rushing attack with Singletary, Moss and Breda, they just couldn't really get enough going on the ground. I think part of it for me is when I look at the two teams and I think that the Patriots use the run game effectively and they they really do have quite that that balanced offense when they attack. I think with the Bills, we're so used to Josh Allen and Diggs connecting and Knox connecting. Dawson Knox is here, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That I think what potentially becomes the problem for their run game in this scenario is... Their run game works when other teams aren't sure what's going to happen, right? So if they have to be honest and defend the passing game, which you always have to against the Bills, then their run game can be a little bit more effective. But if the run game is all that you have to rely on, that showed in this matchup to be very, very lacking. Whereas you flip that on for New England... Flip it on its head, yeah. Flip it on its head and the Bills... Look, all that New England were doing was running the ball. Three pass attempts for the whole game. They were running the ball. You knew what was coming, but they couldn't stop the run. And that, I think, is probably the biggest issue for this team, the biggest worry. It's not that they couldn't really get the run game going because you can address that. You can make adjustments. That's not the end of the world. You can bring Josh Allen in more. You can get ways around that. But if you can't stop the run, you're going to struggle mightily in playoffs. And they could not stop the run against this New England team, even though they knew the... Patriots were playing run after run after run. They knew what was coming. They could have lined up 10 men in the box. They knew what was coming, but they couldn't stop it. They just couldn't stop it. And when it's that obvious, when it's that, like you basically know the play what is coming, but you can't stop it, that's a serious worry. And that's what I'd be massively concerned about right now if I was a Bills fan. Well, it is limiting. And as a Green Bay fan, it's something that I've witnessed the last couple of years for 
the team that I support. And that limits how far they can go in postseason. We might be seeing the same from Bills here. Yeah, they're on a slide vote. I mean, three out of the last five games they've lost. We'll talk about what's coming up for them in our game previews. But I mean, the season's gone a little bit sour since about the halfway point, And the Bills really need to get the show back on the road. Yeah, where do you think they start? Because we've seen games where defensively they were really good at the beginning of the season. That dropped off. We've seen offensively their passing game was electric at the beginning of the season. That's tailed off slightly. It feels like there are quite a few areas that are just starting to dip for the Bills. Is there somewhere that they can find an anchor point or that they need to prioritise that will help them set them on the straight and narrow? I think it just boils down to execution. When you look at why they lost this game, I mean, they were one of four in the red zone. And, and OK, we know how bad the conditions were. So you should expect perhaps less than optimal statistics. But they were one of four in the red zone. They turned it over at the 30-yard line. They made a lot of mistakes. Have they just executed better? Have they been just more efficient with a ball, more safe with a ball? They probably would have won this game. So it's execution. And that's what they've got to look at. They've got to get tighter in practice. They've got to get their heads back down. And we've got to get concentrating again. That's my view on it. Yeah. And if we needed any greater nod towards the mind that is Bill Belichick, did, did you hear his interview, Joe, when they asked him how he was feeling? I didn't hear his interview. What did he say? Did he say cold? <laughs> he said a little rundown. <laughs> a little rundown. Genius. Genius. Understated genius. Uh, yeah, I mean, you've got to take your hats off to that. Not only is he planning the game, but he's planning the interview the day after. The man, he just has it all. He's playing chess while we're playing checkers. I'm telling you. <laughs> yes. So um, let's take a sideward slide to uh, two teams that don't have it all at the moment. I know this is a slightly painful topic here, but let's discuss the Detroit Lions and the Vikings. Oh, that was terrible. I'll be honest. After that game, I just didn't want to watch any football on a Sunday night at all. It, it, it was depressing for a Vikings fan how that game finished. To the Detroit Lions, the winless Detroit Lions who haven't won... I don't know, since sometime in like early 92 when Barry Sanders was still playing for them. That was so long since we won a game. Detroit Lions, well done to their fan base. They got a last-minute buzzer beater against the Vikings' first win of the season. Yeah, and you even had Mike Tice saying, even my sorry ass never lost to Detroit. Cool. That's coming from Mike Tice. I know. That's pretty low. Just because Mike Tice opening his mouth is pretty low. <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, it was a tough one. It, to be honest, for the neutral, it was, I wouldn't say it was an exciting game, but it was an interesting game to watch. What was your view on it, aside from your, your kind of home biases? How did you see this game? Taking the emotion out of it, the Vikings still played well at times. There were a few kind of key players down, but you can never blame things on injuries, and I wouldn't insult listeners by doing that. But in spite of the injuries, players stepped up. Uh, yeah. Justin Jefferson had a huge game, a huge game again. He basically took all the receiving duties on his shoulders. Massive game. There were plays coming from, you know, second string defensive players. You've got players like James Lynch in there who played pretty decent. Kirk Cousins, in my eyes, executed well once again. All the casuals will once again be shouting for Kirk Cousins out. but Which I don't know how you can do that stupid. if you saw that game. Because it's... It's casual, yeah. Charles. It's, it, it's just casual. Well, the offence was not the issue. The problem was that they couldn't stop the Lions scoring, and that is a problem considering how the Lions have performed so far this season. 
Yeah, well, in fairness, the offense weren't too good in the first half. I mean, they had five drives, I think, into the Detroit half and only came away with six points. They weren't executing as well as they have done. But look, all through this season, the problem hasn't been scoring points. The offense have scored points. I think aside from one game, the offense has been relatively blameless. Yes, there was the missed field goal that they lost against the... Bengals with and there was a fumble against the Cardinals there's been those kind of two bits but all in all the offense has been fine the defense at time has come up big but it always just seems to be this four minute drill where the defense just loses their heads where they're giving up plays just stupid plays like I mean Amon Rasson Brown when he made that buzzer beating he actually get the touchdown to win the game there were two defenders in his vicinity but not defending in the manner that they should be for a last minute red zone pass. They were giving him far, far, far too much space. It's on Cam Dantzler, second year. By this point, he should probably know better. It's coaching as well, though. But it's just players losing their heads in the last four minutes. And that's been the Vikings' blight this season. Had they had a better four-minute drill defending, they could very much be challenging Green Bay for the uh, NFC North. But as things stand, they'll be fortunate to get into the playoffs. Very fortunate. It's probably the end of the road for the playoffs right now, and deservedly so if you lose to the Detroit Lions. Yeah, so we've spoken about the Vikings a little bit on this podcast, and, and we've touched on how they've lost quite a few games very narrowly. You know, they're a team that's always in it. And I suppose my question is going to be, they're now five and seven, but they haven't lost spectacularly in really any game. Is Zimmer's job at risk? I mean, because you look at the Vikings and you say, right, positionally, the Vikings aren't where they want to be. That's not the ambition of the club, especially considering the talent that they do have there. But at the same time, you can also look at this and just say, in quite a few games, they've been relatively unlucky or they've just missed the mark narrowly. Is that enough to light a fire under the seat that Zimmer's on or not? I think it's very much a fire under Zimmer's chair right now. But to just put it into context, I think, look, I'm quite involved in the uh, UK Vikings fan base, you know, forums, chat rooms, all that kind of stuff. I'm quite active. I would say over the last two weeks... It's really turned sour for me. You go back kind of two, three years ago and those forums and chat rooms, I felt were elevated. They, they were quite renaissance. There was intelligent conversation going on in them. In the last two weeks, it's just turned into droning, loud voices of Zimmer out. Just just reactionary garbage. Now, there's plenty of things you can criticise Zimmer for. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be an apologist for for Zimmer in any kind of way at all. The vitriol and reactiveness that's come over the last kind of two weeks is also massively overplaced. There has to be a conversation. There is a fire under a chair right now to answer your question. But it shouldn't be really judged on the basis of just a few games of losing to the Lions, as embarrassing as that is. If you want to criticise Zimmer, look more at the nepotism of how his son has been involved, the whole situation with Kubiak and his son. I mean, nepotism doesn't really ever work very well at all. Again, unless you're a genius and you're spawning people like Steve Belichick and you're making that work, maybe. But generally, when coaches start bringing their sons on board, it's not the best thing to be going and doing. You can look at Zimmer's draft a strategy over the last few years. You take away Jefferson and first round picks have been pretty bad for the Vikings since about 2015 now. There's things that you can criticise. You can criticise how he's overspent on free agents on the defence and basically bought in veterans who are being paid too much. There's always things you can criticise and you can build a case for saying, hey, maybe Zimmer's time has come to an end. But I just feel like the conversation has just turned moronic 
especially on a lot of UK Vikings fan sites over the last couple of weeks. So, you know, I'm firing shots there, but that's my personal view on it. Yeah, I think that seems like a very fair and balanced assessment. I mean, you'll know more about it than I do as as a Vikings fan yourself, but I certainly look at the Vikings and I look at Zimmer and I feel that they have been unlucky. And I I hate using that term because I think in the NFL... Luck plays a part, but it's a marginal part. You know, you've got your tactics, you've got, there's so much that goes into creating a win to minimalize it to luck or bad luck in the case of a loss feels unjust. But we are talking about a missed field goal, a fumble, you know, right at the end that you just think, oh, if that had just gone the other way, if it was millimeter that way, if it was, you know, half a centimeter that side, things would have been different. And I feel that the Vikings and Zimmer are getting a very unfair rap, almost like they're the Bears or the Jaguars, you know, and and I don't think that that is fair for a club that is remaining competitive every single week against their opposition. I agree with you, Charles, but I would just flip it the other way around as well. If those games had gone the other way and the Vikings had won them and they were sitting at 9-4-10-3, we'd be having a conversation right now where we'd be saying, hold on, they've got this record there, but they could have easily have lost four or five of those games. They could be a lot worse. And yes, winning is basically all that matters, but you don't get through playoffs riding your luck like that. You might win one. Yeah. You might have a Minnesota miracle like they did a few years back, but then you get smashed by Philly 38-7 in the next game. So, yes, they're unlucky where they are in terms of regular season record. Yes, perhaps they are. But are they a good playoff team? Are they a championship team? No, they're not. And ultimately, that's where every team should be striving. And over the last five years, they've won one playoff game, I think. No, two. Two, uh, both against the Saints. I was about to say, they beat the Saints every year, seemingly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But but they've been very much a kind of nearly team for the last few years. And they've not quite been good enough to get to the top game. And when you look at the talent that's on this team, you know, I'm biased. I am biased, but I think they've got the best wide receiver in the league. They've got one of the top three or five running backs in the league, whichever way you want to kind of calculate that. The offensive line's getting better. They've got probably, like I've touched on Jefferson, but Phelan is, is, you know, a top 15 wide receiver. People might challenge me on that, but I feel that he is. They've got talent on the offense everywhere. They've drafted badly on the defense side of the ball, which is why they've got gaps. Yeah. But there should be enough talent in this team to be perhaps more competitive than what they are. And for some of these close games, perhaps shouldn't have been close games. They should have been games that the Vikings should have won by, you know, two scores. Yeah, I think that's all very fair. So we had a big upset there in Detroit. Let's shift on over another massive upset with, well, maybe not massive, but fairly big in terms of Pittsburgh Steelers beating the Ravens. And that's helped sort of, I I mean, again, we talk about how competitive this division is. It remains to be so as a result of that. Yeah, like no team can seem to just kind of cast off the uh, chocks and just kind of get away. I didn't see the game going this way. We've been firing some flack at Roethlisberger and the Pittsburgh Steelers over the last few weeks. I stand by that. I do stand by that. I don't think they're a good team. I don't think that Roethlisberger has anything left. Surprised it went this way. Again, could have very much have gone the other way. We're talking about fine margins this week on the pod. Had Harbour gone for the PAT at the end of the game, it would have gone into overtime and I'd have fancied a Ravens for that. Equally, had Andrews just called the catch in, they could have won the game then and there. So the Steelers won. It was very close. Ravens have problems. Ravens have problems. It's injury accumulation. It happens for all teams, but they seem to be 
accumulating injuries in certain positions where you just can't have too many injuries. I'm talking cornerback. They lost another cornerback on Sunday night in Mullen Humphreys. This is going to be a problem for the Ravens because teams are going to be able to score him. When Roethlisberger gets, you know, 230 yards and a couple of TDs, better quarterbacks are going to absolutely shred this team. So they need to get players healthy as soon as they can. It wasn't a particularly high-scoring game. It was a game where the Steelers frustrated the Ravens' offense. And as you said, you might look at that 20 score from the Steelers and think, well, they didn't put up major points, but you're letting Big Ben and a Steelers offense that has struggled mightily put 20 points up against you. That's the telling aspect. What were your thoughts around the two-point play, Joe? You, You know, it was go and win, don't get it, go home. They went for it. Personally, I like the bold call. I think we're approaching that kind of playoff window and these are the kind of plays that you need to be practicing with your team and and giving them the confidence to feel that they can make those big plays in the big games that matter. It didn't work out this time around, but I think that kind of practice can't hurt the team. Did you have a different view on it? No, I think we're on a similar kind of viewpoint there, Charles, but I just kind of say with these things, it's always easy to make a judgment in hindsight. That play could have gone either way. Ravens are generally quite good with two-point conversions. Have they got it, we'd all be saying that it was a great call. They didn't get it, but it always looks bad afterwards. I don't like to make judgments on these kind of things unless they're genuinely stupid. Now, if that was a game the Ravens had to win to make playoffs, maybe I would have, I would have seen it a little bit more differently. Yeah. Maybe I'd have been conservative. But at the end of the day as well, nearly all teams now are making their decisions and judgment on analytics. Now, Analytics, I've talked about this previously in quite a bit of detail. Analytics, they make everything sound so scientific, but it's not scientific. It's subjective on how you do the maths to get to the conclusions you're making. There's no definitive way to calculate if something is the right play to make. You have to have a theory for saying this calculation is the one that I'm going to trust. So taking all that aside, all teams really now are governed in these situations by analytics a lot. So I'd even go as far as saying that it wasn't even really a decision that Harbour made. It was what the analytics told him to, to go and do. There's an element of that there as well. And when it's that, well, it's not even a decision then. So for multiple reasons, I'm not really inclined to kind of pass judgment on. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point that you make about the calculations there because it was a topic that we spoke a, a little bit about last season, um, certainly with regards to, and I know this is different statistics and analytics, but that ridiculous probability that always pops up and says, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, that's yeah. nonsense analytics. But but you're absolutely yeah. right. The analytics that the coaches are dealing with, they, they will have in their head, okay, this is the probability if we run this play and this is the probability if we run that play based on, as you said, whatever calculations they've driven and they trust with regards to managing their team going forward. And and it is funny how I think in a lot of sports you think about coaches' intuition and I'm sure the same still applies to American football, but there is quite a mathematical element that I think is involved in American football, probably more so than some of the major other sports. Yeah, and just to use one example really quickly, because I don't want to kind of bang on about this for too long, because I, I could go on about this all night. But just for one of the most famous plays, really, over the last decade, when the Seahawks lost Super Bowl 49 to the Patriots a few years back, that famous play at the end of the game, where they went for the throw on the, what was it, the two-yard line, and, Ma- and Malcolm Butler made the interception. 
After that, everyone was talking about was that the right play to make? Why did he call that play? Why didn't he use my Sean Lynch to rumble in from two yards? And people were talking about it like a decision was made, like Carroll had got the call wrong and all of that kind of stuff. But if you looked in hindsight, all the analytics said that was the right play to call, that that was a play that should have been made. And you had all the stats to back it up, how the Seahawks had struggled on short yardage conversions, how Russell Wilson was finding success going to that receiver. All of these things suggested go for the pass. And I'm not saying that Carroll was using his analytics at that time, but there's lots more coaches now who are using it. All because it says analytics, all because it sounds scientific, it doesn't mean that it's right. But it's impermeated the game so much now that it's what's driving so many of these calls. And so you mentioned there kind of the intuition of coaches. For most teams now, the game's kind of moved past that. And so all of these calls now that are happening when teams are going for kind of two-pointers here, they're not going for it, whatever. A lot of the time, it's just what their theoretical maths is just saying to go and do. So... If we're talking analytics then, let's talk very briefly about a team that we've mentioned earlier quite a bit in Kansas City and their defence that has been a, a massive issue, certainly early on in the season. Analytics would, would suggest that Kansas City struggle on the defensive end. It's an opportunity maybe to take uh, something from the game for Denver. It certainly didn't pan out that way, did it? It did not. This game, though, let's take a step back. We spoke about the Kansas City Chiefs near the start of the year when they were really struggling and made the point then that it was the defence, really, that was the biggest decline from last season and it was a defence that was costing the games more than the offence was and that points for points, the offence were scoring vaguely in line with how they were the previous season. Defence has come through strong in the last few weeks. I mean, going back to when they beat the Packers... What was it, like 17-0? I, I know that was against Jordan Love. But they've had a couple of decent performances over the last few weeks. Defense came up trumps here again. But the offense, I would say, just to put the brakes on the Kansas City Chiefs fans who, again, a little bit carried away right now, the offense looked not great again. And it would have basically have been only 16 points they scored because six of those 22 points were on a pick six. They're inconsistent. They're inconsistent but winning games. And they still, for me, are not a team that will go deep in playoffs. For, as we've mentioned, for some other teams previously, they're not stringing together team performances on a consistent enough basis. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think, you know, we've all had our own criticisms of, of Denver. And uh, in particular, we've circled out Teddy Bridgewater quite a few times. He wasn't awful this game, but um, he certainly didn't help his team challenge. He just doesn't do enough to elevate his team. That's the it, thing. I, and that's a very, yeah. You're so spot on with that because he's not awful. And when you look at what, you know, the plays that he makes, you go, yeah, fine. And you look at his his stats at the end of the game and you go, meh, yeah, okay. But it's that taking them to the next level. It's that, right, we rely on you, our quarterback, to make this pass or to magic something out of this moment or to try something that people aren't expecting. And that's what Teddy Bridgewater can't seem to bring to the table. If my team was 14 points down, Bridgewater's probably one of the last quarterbacks that I'd want on the field. Once he's out of a close game, he just seems to start making boneheaded plays not really have the drive to kind of get back in games. And it sounds like such a kind of subjective thing. And I'm not backing this up with facts. So I, I probably need to get some more facts and look into this some more. But just from the eye test, I just don't see enough when they really need him to step up and drive that team forward. Yeah, well, I mean, 
if you want to talk about stats, his quarterback rating was 62.2. He got a touchdown, but he had two interceptions, around 250 yards. He probably only completed about half of his passes. So, so again, very average, too poor, really. Yeah, yeah. And this is a Denver defense, which despite getting rid of Von Miller, has got a lot there. It's a defense that drafted good rookies. Like, I mean, Patrick Sertain, for me, had Micah Parsons not been playing as well as he is, because let's be honest about it, things, Micah Parsons is defensive rookie of the oh, year. Oh, yeah. Whatever your views are, he's going to win it. That's that's just cut and dried. But had Parsons not been playing the way that Parsons is playing, had Parsons been out of the equation, Patrick Sertain, for me, is the next best defensive rookie out there. I, I think he's been extremely, extremely good from preseason all the way through this season. Yes, he's made a couple of mistakes at times and you know a, a couple of plays he gave up against Kansas City at the weekend. He wasn't perfect, but generally across the whole season, I think Sertain has been excellent. And the Denver defense as a whole has strung together some really good games. Yeah, completely agree with you. So before we just move on then to our previews for next week, it's probably worth just mentioning that Kansas City now have a few tough games coming up, right? So they've still got to play the Chargers. They've still got to play the Bengals. These are games that are going to really mean a lot to them, especially the Chargers, which is a divisional matchup again. Yes and no, Charles. I think that they do have a couple of tougher games coming up. Those are the two that you've mentioned. They've got Denver again. They've, I think they've got the Steelers and I think they've got Raiders. I, I, I could be wrong there, but off my head, I think those are the five games they've got left. I think right now, right now they're going to be favourites for probably four of those games. But we need to see, we really need to see kind of whole team performances, especially from some of the vets. I mean, Kelsey should have had a fumble called and Mike Vrabel's tweets were spot on. It was a fumble that Kelsey did. Hill has been not consistent enough either. There's a lot this team still needs to work on and it'll be very interesting to see what they do against the Chargers and the Bengals in teams that can score on them and can give them a tougher game than what Demma gave them on Sunday. So... Let's move on then to take a look at next week, Joe. Things are hotting up quite a bit for certain teams. I think a really nice key matchup to focus in on is Atlanta and Carolina. They're both teams that sit on 5-7 now. And the feeling has to be at this stage, it's kind of win or go home for the playoffs. That's right. I agree with you, Charles. I think that any team that finishes this weekend on five wins has suddenly got a really, really a tough job of getting into the playoffs. I mean, you finished this weekend with six wins and you still got a tough job, but five wins after um, 14 weeks? No, I think you've had it by that point. So both of these teams are still in the hunt at different stages through this season. Both teams have looked good at points. You know, Carolina had a very hot start going, what was it, 3-0, and I think, the first few games, when Donald looked a reinvigorated new player. Now, that seems like a lifetime away now. Donald's almost a distant memory in Carolina. Cam Newton back starting for them. Funny how things go. Atlanta as well, a, a bad start. They had a, a tasty little run for a few games where they strung a few wins together and almost got up to 0.500, but they've gone back off the boil again. Neither of these teams, look, let's be honest, Charles, neither of these teams are going to have a deep playoff run if they do make playoffs. But if either of them was hoping to scrape the last wildcard spot, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. They have to They have to get a W this weekend. And if I had to... How do you see it going? Uh, oh, you beat me to it. I was just about to ask you. But for me, look, I watched 
the Falcons at the weekend, I saw Matt Ryan struggle mightily. And, and we've seen that, you know, Matt Ryan does not have the price protection that he needs at the Falcons. But I, I feel like he has taken such a beating this season that even when he does have the protection, he's just jittery. He doesn't look all together. Cam, we've seen him have his highs. We've seen him have his lows. We know that he can be largely inconsistent as well. But I think Atlanta really rely on too many individual players like Patterson and Matt Ryan. Whereas Carolina, I feel are are potentially better balanced overall as a team. So I think if I had to put my money on the line, I'd probably feel more confident in Carolina coming away with a just sort of well-managed game that gets them over the line. I think the Falcons have mistakes in them still. You're probably right there. And I think you're quite right as well in how you've isolated really that if you stop Cordero Patterson, you've basically stopped this team. And where he's had bad games, Atlanta just don't win. And you were right as well, I think, to highlight as well how there are just more players, difference makers on both sides of the ball for this Carolina team. There's a lot of talent which is in this team. I mean, you, you look across the defense, you look across the names there. You've got players like Brian Burns, who's been great since he came into the league in 2019. Players like Shaq Thompson, who is playing at a very high standard still. You know, Hassan Reddick. AJ Boué, who's not quite the foresight he was, but he can still hold down a cornerback slot. Jeremy Chin. There's so many players on this defense. It just almost feels that like if they could just get, just get solid on offense, like how some teams are. I'm, I'm thinking like how the Ravens were when they used to get to Super Bowls with Joe Flacco in there. If they could just get that kind of solidness and consistency, this is a team that could achieve things. We talked about how teams were going to struggle to get into the playoffs if they ended this game week with five wins. Let's just take a look at some of the teams that are sitting on six wins at the moment and some of the matchups that they've got coming up ahead. So Cleveland is six and six, Las Vegas is six and six. We've got Washington at six and six and San Francisco on six and six. You know, some of those teams trending up, some of them slightly dipping down. But when we look at who they have to play this week, you've got Cleveland at the Ravens, who, yes, fresh off a loss, but they're on eight and four. You've got Las Vegas going against the Chiefs, who are starting to find some rhythm and have put in a strong defensive performance. You've got Washington going to Dallas and you've got San Francisco having to play the Bengals. So some tough matches there, but they're all matchups that those six win teams are going to be desperate to try and sneak something away from it. That's right. You're spot on to kind of bring this up. We've got three six and six teams playing three eight and four teams. And at this stage in the season where we are starting to get into the sharp end of things, every win is pivotal. Now, I'm going to pull out one there, which I think is the most important game for for, for these six six teams. The, the most pivotal one, really. It's the divisional game that we've got there with Cleveland and Baltimore. Baltimore right now are wounded. As you mentioned, they lost a divisional game against the Steelers on Sunday. They're banged up. They're injured. They've strung a couple of bad games together. Baltimore have to win this. If Cleveland win and go 7-6, they don't just take the W. They also put a blow on a divisional rival and hurt them some more. Cleveland lose this, then they're 6-7. Baltimore 9-4. And all the other Sharks in that tank in the AFC North 
are probably getting stronger this week as well. If Cleveland win this, then they start to fall behind and it starts to it, it starts to get a little bit desperate for them. I know this football that's still left to be played, but all those divisional matchups in the AFC North are, are going to be stingers. So in terms of teams that I think are playoff teams that should be thinking about getting into playoffs, it's got to be Cleveland. Cleveland have got to win that for me. How about you? What's your views with those matchups? I, I think you're absolutely correct with that. And I think the interesting thing that you pointed out is the Ravens are a weakened team. They took another injury, as you mentioned, this weekend. Cleveland are a team that are actually bouncing back from injury a bit. They had quite a few injuries earlier on in the season. They had quite a few players that um, had to miss games because of COVID protocols and so on. They're starting to come back as a fully fit team now for the most part. And they're starting to string some performances together. So I think... That is a key opportunity. I think when you're talking about the makeup of that division, another matchup that's particularly interesting that plays into that is going to be San Francisco and the Bengals. Because I, if you'd have asked me a couple of weeks ago, I'd have thought the Bengals were clear winners for this one. You're asking me today, I think that is a very close potential game. And if the Bengals lose that and Cleveland win theirs, all bets are off again. Exactly. There's there's so much going on. Last week, we saw a lot of games where we saw kind of playoff teams playing against teams who are basically out of playoffs. There were lots of games where you'd expect the, the result which happened or games that were kind of almost dead rubbers at this stage. This week, there's a lot on the line. I'm not going to make calls on everything because that's a mugs game. We've seen from this season how any given Sunday, anything can happen. But a lot of really important matchups to keep your eyes on. And I'm going to be keeping my eyes on them with you on Sunday. Looking forward to it, Charles. That's it. The new variant can't keep us apart, Joe. We're going to have our second full-on Sunday NFL session this weekend. Very much looking forward to it. So uh, we can't sign off the same way that we normally do, Joe. Talk to you this week. <laughs> I'll see you on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. So I'll see you Sunday, Charles, and everyone else. I'll speak to you next week. Speak to you then.